Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christagenia Internet Radio. Today is Friday, February 17th, 2017. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. You may tell that presenting Malachi these past couple of weeks, I have opted for slightly shorter programs than usual, so that I can concentrate on particular themes without having them really overlap. So these last couple of segments are probably about 15 or 20% shorter than usual. I initially thought this scheme would require four podcasts to complete Malachi, but it will now be at least five if we only have one more program in the series, then the final one may certainly be closer to 90 minutes. This is part four of our series of commentaries on the prophecy of Malachi, and it's subtitled, Preparing the Way of the Lord, a subtitle I've changed several times since I started writing this yesterday. When the Magi journeyed to Judea from Parthia to see the Christ child, the infant had already been presented at the temple and was circumcised according to the law in the eighth day and had already been moved by his parents out of the manger and into a house in Bethlehem. So for all these years, the Christian or the Catholic nativity scene has been terribly inaccurate. By the time the Magi had arrived in Judea, and there was no Negro Magi, by the way, the Magi were all white men from Parthia, where the kingdoms of the Persians and the Medes were. As the ancient Greek writers instruct us that the Magi were a priesthood found amongst the Persians and the Medes, Aryan people. So by the time the Magi arrived in Judea, the Christ child may have already been a year old, and possibly closer to two. And while they apparently acted on information which is now wanting in our sacred writings, the Magi were not alone in their anticipation of the promised Messiah. We see the same expectation in many of the other people in Judea, such as the apostles themselves who exclaimed from the beginning that we have found the Messiah, as it is recorded in John chapter 1, or the Samaritan woman at the well who said, I know that the Messiah comes, as it is recorded in John chapter 4. Additionally, there was the elderly Simeon, described in Luke chapter 2, who was told that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And see him he did, as he was presented in the temple eight days after his birth. But in the courts of government in Jerusalem, there was a completely different reaction, not of joy, but of fear and enmity. As we may discern from Matthew chapter 2 where it says, Now when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men, the Greek word being Magi, from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he that is born king of the Judeans? For we have seen his star in the east. 
and are come to worship him. When Herod the king had heard these things, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Ostensibly, all Jerusalem was troubled upon the announcement of the birth of a Savior for Israel because, as we read here in Malachi chapter 2, Judah had dealt treacherously and an abomination is committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the holiness of Yahweh, whom he loved and has married the daughter of a strange God. And not only was Malachi characterizing the reason why there was apostasy in ancient Judea, as we saw in the corroborating testimony of Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel, but he was also making a prophecy of what was about to become of Judea in his own near future. And we described the historical record of how that was fulfilled. In the absorption of the Edomites and other Canaanites of Palestine in the second century BC. When all of those alien peoples were converted and brought into the polity of the people in Jerusalem. By the time of Christ, those Edomites and Canaanites had become predominant in Jerusalem and many of the good people of the nation were pushed to the margins of the society. The result is the divisions among the people and their diverse reactions to Christ, which are apparent in the gospel. For the same reason, when the appropriate time had come, the voice of the godly cried out from the wilderness and not from the temple of God. In the statement that Judah had profaned the holiness of Yahweh whom he loved and had married the daughter of a strange God, we see a refutation of the rhetorical questions which preceded where it was asked, Have we not all one Father? And has not one God created us? While at the same time we are told why the people dealt treacherously every man against his brother by profaning the covenant of their fathers. The truth is that we do not all have one God, and that same God has not created all of us. For which reason it is that when Christ was confronted with these same assertions, as it is recorded in John chapter 8, he denied that his adversaries were born from God. He denied that those who opposed him had a common origin with him in spite of the fact that they could claim to be offspring of Abraham. So he explained to them that they were actually the children of Cain. And we have already explained that in our last segment of this presentation, just how such things could be from the history of the Old Testament. Cain was a bastard. Cain in turn married into a race outside of the Garden of God. And the deeper truth of these matters is revealed in a greater study of the angels that sinned, the resulting corruption of the original creation, and the idioms of Genesis chapter 3, along with the textual problems found in Genesis chapter 4, things which we cannot possibly reproduce here. Therefore, speaking of the men of his own time and beyond, and addressing the priests specifically, the prophet Malachi then said in reference to the sin of Judah, 
that Yahweh will cut off the man that does this, the master and the scholar, out of the tabernacles of Jacob, and him that offers an offering unto Yahweh of hosts. And this you have done again, covering the altar of Yahweh with tears, with weeping, and with crying out, insomuch that he regards not the offering any more, or receives it with good will at your hand. So we see that the people of Malachi's time had run out of chances of repentance, having committed the same sins of race mixing repeatedly, and this you have done again. So we see the end of the Levitical priesthood in an example of what happens to a society which would corrupt itself in that manner. And this is precisely what happened to Jerusalem in the 70 weeks kingdom of the period between the Old and the New Testaments. Here Malachi has warned the priests collectively that their offerings would no longer be accepted. Yet, as individuals, they may still walk the path of righteousness, where he had said at the beginning of these admonitions, that the commandment for the priests was on the condition that, if you will not hear, and if you will not lay it to heart. Therefore, as we shall see in chapter 3 of Malachi, a cleansing of sin and another chance of repentance was offered to the sons of Levi. That would not come, however, until the time of John the Baptist. For now, in the balance of chapter 2 of Malachi, the prophet continues to describe the nature of the sins of the priests. Yet ye say, in verse two, chapter 2, verse 14, Yet ye say, Wherefore? Because Yahweh has been a witness between thee and the wife of thy youth, against whom thou hast dealt treacherously, yet she is thy companion and the wife of thy covenant. And this isn't addressing the actual wives of each priest. The priests are being addressed here as messengers of Yahweh. As we have seen in verse 7 of this chapter where it says, For the priest's lips should keep knowledge, and they should seek the law at his mouth, for he is the messenger of Yahweh of hosts. Therefore the wife being discussed here is actually an allegory for the children of Israel, which are collectively described as being the wife of God throughout the books of the earlier prophets. By integrating the people of Judea with the Edomites and Canaanites. The priests are dealing treacherously with their companion Israelites. The priests are being blamed for this. And as it happened historically, the high priest John Hyrcanus was chiefly the advocate of this policy. While the priests are Israelites individually, in their capacity as priests, they are the mediators of the Old Covenant and representatives of God. So the wife of the covenant is the wife of the special priestly covenant which Yahweh had made with Levi, which was also mentioned earlier in his chapter. 
And it says in verse 15, And did he not make one? And we have contention with this translation. We will explain it. And did he not make one? Yet he had the residue of the Spirit. And wherefore one? Or why one? That he might seek a goodly seed, or a godly seed, I'm sorry. It's actually in Hebrew, a seed of God would be better. Therefore take heed to your spirit, and let none deal treacherously against the wife of his youth. The Hebrew of this verse is difficult. And while the translation in the King James Version is confusing, or better yet, confused, all of the popular translations add words, often unjustly, in their attempts to make sense of this passage. After studying the verse at length, we are not satisfied with any translation, including the Greek of the Septuagint. But we believe that one of the better attempts is found in the New American Standard Bible, where we read, But not one has done so who has a remnant of the Spirit. And what did that one do while he was seeking a godly offspring? Take heed then to your spirit, and let no one deal treacherously against the wife of your youth. Now the New American Standard Bible does well with the opening and the final clauses of the passage. And the opening clause reads, But not one has done so who has a remnant of the Spirit. This means that those priests in Jerusalem at the time of Malachi, who had the residue of the Spirit, had not taken strange wives or promoted or approved of such race-mixing amongst their brethren. But where it has the second clause to read, and what did that one do while he was seeking a godly offspring? It also adds words such as did that, and do while he was, putting only some of them in italics. Without adding any words, for the corresponding Hebrew we would write instead, and how does one seek a godly offspring? So we would read this passage. But not one has done so who has a remnant of the Spirit. And how does one seek a godly offspring? Take heed then to your spirit, and let no man deal treacherously against the wife of your youth. And the final clause of the translation in the same work is acceptable. So the priests who maintained a remnant of the Spirit of God had remained on the path of righteousness and where the question arises as to how one seeks a godly seed or offspring, the answer is to obey the Spirit of God and not deal treacherously against the children of Israel. Then the explanation, which is still an answer to Judah's having married the daughter of a strange god, continues in verse 16. For Yahweh, the God of Israel, says that he hates putting away, for one covers violence with his garment, saith Yahweh of hosts. Therefore take heed to your spirit, that ye deal not treacherously. First, the prophet reminds the priest that Yahweh is the God of Israel. 
And then he says that Yahweh hates putting away. In the King James Version, the word divorce does not appear as a verb, except for the construction bill of divorce in Jeremiah chapter 3, a phrase which is actually a substantive, which is a noun that is usually translated as bill of divorcement. The bill of divorcement is not the act of divorce. Rather, it is only a piece of paper commemorating the act. Where we see the phrases such as putting away, put away, we see the verb which corresponds to the act of divorce, as when a man puts puts away a wife. In ancient times, there were no divorce courts, but for right or wrong, a man simply forced the woman out of his house and under the streets. So once again, the priests are warned to take heed and not deal treacherously against the wife of their youth. The children of Israel, to whom they represented the will of God the husband through the teachings of the law, which they had been partial in. Ultimately, Yahweh God himself will not put away the children of Israel because he hates divorce. Now, in my estimation, one that covers violence with his garment, garments in the ancient world represented a man's vocation, a man's office. A priest covering violence with his garment is using his priestly stature to approve of sins which actually result in treachery and violence against the people and approving of the sin of race mixing, you are indeed promoting violence and treachery against your people. This passage is a further rejection of universalism and a rejection of replacement theology that Yahweh would not bring anyone into his covenant except those to whom he had originally made the promises. This is also a prophecy which anticipates certain aspects of the Gospel of Christ. In Luke chapter 16, in relation to this very same phenomenon, we read, The law and the prophets were until John. Since that time, the kingdom of Yahweh is preached and every man presses into it. And it is easier for heaven and earth to pass than one tittle of the law to fail. Whosoever puts away his wife and marries another commits adultery. And whosoever marries her that is put away from her husband commits adultery. At another time, and in a different context... Yahshua Christ had spoken similar words as they are recorded at Matthew chapter 11, verse 12. And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and the violent take it by force. So this is how every man presses into the kingdom of God. And Yahshua warned the priests that a man who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. Men commit adultery quite frequently. However, God himself will not commit adultery because God does not sin. Yahweh had put away the children of Israel. 
and scattered them among the nations of the ancient Adanic Oikumene, or world, if you will. As the scripture and history describe, he was compelled to do this for their sin. However, he would not marry another, lest he by his own mouth be found as an adulterer. So he also promised never to forsake the children of Israel, even as they were being put away. And in fact, this is a subject of prophecy, as early as Deuteronomy chapter 4, where we have a warning that upon the disobedience of the children of Israel, the Lord shall scatter you among the nations. And then a little further on it says, When thou art in tribulation, and all these things are come upon thee, even in the later days, if thou turn to Yahweh thy God, and shalt be obedient unto his voice, for Yahweh thy God is a merciful God, he will not forsake thee, neither destroy thee, nor forget the covenant of thy fathers which he sware unto them. So Yahweh God would not forsake the wife of his youth the nations of Israel would later be obedient in Christ as Paul calls them to obedience in Christ. The purpose of the gospel. As the children of Israel were being put away in punishment, as in the very time of the prophet Isaiah they were being carried off into captivity by the Assyrians, Yahweh said through the prophet in Isaiah chapter 42, and I will bring the blind by a way that they knew not. I will lead them in paths that they have not known. I will make darkness light before them, and crooked things straight. These things will I do unto them, and not forsake them. As we shall soon see, this making of crooked things straight is a theme of Isaiah's prophecy concerning John the Baptist. So by this... We know that Christ is the light which Yahweh made for these scattered children of Israel that he would not forsake. Then, he spoke also in Hosea, another prophet of the same period as the children of Israel are being carted off into Assyrian captivity, and said to these same scattered and divorced children of Israel, And it shall be at that day, saith Yahweh, that thou shalt call me Ishi, or my husband, and shalt call me no more Bali, or my lord. For I will take away the names of Balim out of her mouth, the various idols of the Levant. And they shall no more be remembered by their name. And in that day will I make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field, and with the fowls of heaven, and with the creeping things of the ground. And I will break the bow and the sword and the battle out of the earth, and will make them to lie down safely. And I will betroth thee, Yahweh's promise to Israel, and I will betroth thee unto me forever. Yea, I will betroth thee unto me in righteousness, and in judgment, and in loving kindness, and in mercies. I will even betroth thee unto me in faithfulness, and thou shalt know Yahweh. And it shall come to pass in that day, I will hear, saith Yahweh. I will hear the heavens, and they shall hear the earth. And the earth shall hear the corn, and the wine, and the oil. And they shall hear Jezreel, which means Yahweh sows. 
And I will sow her under me in the earth, meaning I will sow Israel under me in the earth. And I will have mercy upon her that it had not, that had not obtained mercy. And I will say to them which were not my people, thou art my people, and they shall say, thou art my God. And that last passage was cited by both Peter and Paul in their epistles to scattered Israelites. 770 years, perhaps, after Hosea had written. This message is the reason why the gospel was sent to the scattered nations of Israel, and Paul of Tarsus was chosen to bear it. But the same Edomite Jews at Jerusalem, who trembled when they heard of the birth of the Messiah, also feared and hated the mission of Paul of Tarsus. So we read in Acts chapter 22, where Paul is arrested in Jerusalem. And when he speaks of Christ in his own defense to the crowd, and he says, Depart, I'm sorry, describing Christ, and the words of Christ to Paul, Paul says, And he said unto me, Depart, for I will send thee far hence unto the Gentiles, from the King James translation. Then we see the immediate response of the Jews in the next verse. And they gave him audience unto this word, and then lifted up their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for it is not fitting that he should live. They wanted to kill Paul because he was taking the gospel of Christ to the scattered Israelites among the nations, according to the prophets. So, in Acts chapter 26, where Paul again defended his actions, he said, And now I stand and am judged for the hope of the promise made of God unto our fathers, unto which promise our twelve tribes, none of which were in Judea, instantly serving God day and night, hope to come. For which hope's sake, King Agrippa, I am accused of the Jews. There was only a small remnant of a couple of those tribes in Judea. So Yahweh God rejects divorce. And for that reason, Yahweh will ultimately be reconciled to the same divorced children of Israel of the Old Testament. And Yahweh will not join himself to others in their place. The priests of Malachi's time dealt treacherously against the children of Israel when they began to admit others. And when Christ gave his discourse on divorce, he upheld these words of Malachi and the other Old Testament prophets in this regard. These others whom the ancient priests had admitted had eventually come to control Judea. They were the wicked hands through which Christ had been slain. They were the men whom Paul said were contrary to all men. And after Christ's resurrection, they opposed the gospel of reconciliation which Paul was bringing to the so-called Gentiles, which were the nations of scattered Israel, as Paul himself explained in Romans chapter 4 and in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. When Christ spoke to his adversaries in Judea about those who forced their way into the kingdom in relation to the subject of divorce, 
He was speaking of the very people who were the result of the same sins for which Malachi addressed the priests of his own time here. Therefore Malachi says in the final verse of this chapter, Ye have wearied Yahweh with your words. Yet you say, Wherein have we wearied him? When you say, and this is another dialogue, when you say everyone that does evil is good in the sight of Yahweh, and he delights in them, or where is the God of judgment? And again we see a dialogue with the priest depicted as asking how it is that they wearied Yahweh, and the answer is that the priests were justifying the wicked, even claiming that God delights in them while at the same time asking themselves, where is the God of judgment? Showing that they really did not believe in that God which they supposed to represent, and therefore they had become a law unto themselves. Sounds exactly like the churches of today. This is ostensibly what they must have been doing in the second century before Christ when they decided that they could take the Edomite and Canaanite bastards, circumcise them, and bring them into the covenants of Israel, calling them good. They had done this for political purposes, as a means of control. Much later in history, the Roman Catholic Church would develop the same policy, and as a result, Until this very day, the denominational churches are found converting beasts into presumed Christians. But that is a digression. Studying the history of these events of which Malachi had prophesied, this policy was executed in Judea precisely for the reason that these Edomites and Canaanites had constantly agitated the people of Judah with violent acts. As Christ had said, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and the violent take it by force. And the Edomites gained control over Jerusalem in that same manner. Likewise today the Jews have subverted every Christian society through acts of war, and now through acts of terrorism, either of their own doing or by encouraging others to do it, such as Negroes or Arabs. Yet the professional priests of modern times are also preaching equality and universalism. God made everybody. And in essence, they they too are claiming that everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord. And in conjunction with that claim, that all people are children of the same God, they claim that God hates the sin, but that men should love the sinners. All of these claims are false, so once again, there is nothing new under the sun. The modern churches are repeating the same sins which were made on a much smaller scale in ancient Judea. And here we learn the source of the heresy. Chapter 3 of Malachi is a response to this very phenomenon, as it was at the time of the prophet, and when we present chapter 4, we will see that the same response is also a valid prophecy for modern times. Commencing with Malachi chapter 3, as soon as I need a drink, I'm sorry. Oh. Behold, I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me. 
and the Lord, from the Hebrew word Adon, and not from the Tetragrammaton, and the Lord whom you seek shall suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant, whom you delight in. Behold, he shall come, saith Yahweh of hosts. The Greek of the Septuagint for this passage is very much like the King James English, except that among other minor variations we see a word which means to look upon, or survey, as Brenton has it, rather than to prepare. Of course, the word is missing in the Dead Sea Scrolls, even though fragments of this passage exist. But the other Greek readings listed by the Hexapla of origin do support that of the Masoretic text, which also agrees with the prophecy of this same messenger in Isaiah. Here it is apparent that the prophet foretells the coming of one messenger and then of another. The first messenger is said to prepare the way before Yahweh himself. Then the Lord from the Hebrew word Adon, which means Lord or Master, suddenly comes to his temple, and he is the messenger of the covenant, and in whom the people are expected to delight. So there is a prophecy of two messengers, and the second messenger must be Yahweh God himself, since the first messenger prepares the way for Yahweh. And the second messenger is said to be the Lord of the temple, which rightfully can only be Yahweh. There is another and earlier prophecy of a messenger preparing the way before Yahweh God in Isaiah chapter 40, where the word of Yahweh says, The voice of him that cries in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of Yahweh. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough places plain, and the glory of Yahweh shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of Yahweh has spoken it. With this we once again see that this first messenger prepares the way for the coming of Yahweh himself, which is Yahshua Christ. Here, where Malachi proceeds, it is not readily evident whether the subsequent words apply to one messenger or the other, or if we may venture to say that they indeed apply to both. And he says in verse 2, But who may abide in the day of his coming? And who shall stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire, and like fuller's soap, and he shall sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And he shall purify the sons of Levi, and purge them as gold and silver, that they may offer unto Yahweh an offering in righteousness. Christ himself was that offering in righteousness. In chapter 3 of the Gospel of Luke, the Apostle cites that very passage in Isaiah chapter 40 in reference to John the Baptist, where we see that he is the messenger sent to prepare the way before Yahweh. And it says, Now in the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, 
Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of Etruria, and the region of Trachonitis, and Lysanias, the tetrarch of Abilene, tetrarch meaning ruler of a fourth, Annas and Caiaphas being the high priests, the word of God came unto John the son of Zechariah in the wilderness, and he came into all the country about Jordan, preparing, or I'm sorry, preaching the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of Yahweh, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be brought low. And the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough ways shall be made smooth. And all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Christ being that salvation for the children of Israel. And if all flesh see it, if you want to think that means all people, that doesn't mean all flesh partake in it. The fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar began in 28 AD. So that is when John began his preaching and the baptism of Christ came shortly thereafter. As the histories of Josephus attest, both Annas and Caiaphas were of the sect of the Sadducees, a sect with which Christ had never had communion. This is corroborated that they were Sadducees in Acts chapter 5 verse 17, where we are informed that the high priest and all they that were with him at that time were the sect of the Sadducees. They were also apparently Edomites, for which we have an indication in Acts chapter 4 where it says, And Annas the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and as many as were of the kindred of the high priest, were gathered together at Jerusalem. And that word kindred is genos, or race. And therefore the race of the high priests was distinguished by the apostles along with their particular sect. If they were Israelites, they should have been of the same race as the apostles, and would not have been distinguished in that manner. The Sadducees denied things that the children of Israel were taught throughout Scripture. According to both Josephus and Luke, where it says in Acts chapter 23, For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, neither angel nor spirit, but the Pharisees confess both. Members of the sect of the Sadducees held the office of high priest almost exclusively from the time of the first Herod to the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, and as many as three-fourths of the men appointed to the position were of the families of either Annas or Caiaphas. We had explained the historical details supporting these assertions in our presentation of Acts chapter 4, given here in 2013. Of course, we cannot reproduce that here either. While Luke was a better provider of details linking facets of the ministry of Christ and the gospel to the wider narrative of secular history, 
Matthew seems to have often given more precise details regarding some of the things internal to Judea. Having witnessed many of the events firsthand because he was a Judean and an original apostle, and having only some vicarious accounts, whereas all of Luke's accounts are vicarious. So we will discuss aspects of the account of John from Matthew's version, where we read in Matthew chapter 3, that in those days came John the Baptist, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, and saying, Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he that was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his path straight. And the same John had his raiment of camel's hair, and a leather girdle about his loins, and his meat or food was locusts and wild honey. So we must keep in mind that while the apostles chose to cite the prophecy of Isaiah chapter 40 in reference to John the Baptist being the messenger sent to prepare the way before Yahweh, that same event also fulfills this prophecy here in Malachi. And therefore John the Baptist is the first messenger of this prophecy where it says, Behold, I will send my messenger and he shall prepare the way before me. Then, regarding the baptism of John, Matthew continues, and he says from verse 5, Then went out to him Jerusalem, and all Judea, and all the region round about Jordan, and were baptized of him in Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said unto them, O generation of vipers, who has warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bring forth, therefore, fruits meet for repentance, and think not to say within yourselves, We have Abraham to our father. For I say unto you, that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. As for the remark of John the Baptist, which was repeated by both Matthew and Luke, For I say unto you, that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. The same universalist denominational churches abuse that passage to promote their own treachery against the bride of Christ. In fact, Christ himself admitted that his adversaries were Abraham's seed in John chapter 8. But as we had illustrated here discussing that very passage from John, in the last segment of this presentation of Malachi, they were not children of God and they were not children of the promise. Paul also explained this in Romans chapter 9 and again in Galatians chapter 3, that Isaac was the son of promise and from him it was passed on to Jacob, but not to Esau. This eliminates the Edomites from any part in the inheritance of God, and Paul in Romans calls them vessels of destruction. Ostensibly, as he explains in Hebrews, because Esau was a race mixer, and his progeny were all bastards. Likewise, if God raised the children of Abraham... If God raised 
children of Abraham from stones, neither would they be children of the promise. And the result would much be the same. A race of men without the spirit and the law in their hearts, which Yahweh God had promised to impart to the children of Israel. Where he said in Jeremiah chapter 31, That behold, the days come, saith Yahweh, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith Yahweh, I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. In the phrase, generation of vipers, as it appears in Matthew chapter 3 verse 7, and also in the corresponding account of Luke, once again the word for generation is genos, or race. Being in part descendants of both Cain and the Rephaim, the Edomites could certainly be referred to as a race of serpents, and they often were. Concerning the appearance of these priests, whom John referred to as a race of vipers, in our presentation of Luke chapter 3, given here in 2012, we said in part, the Pharisees, where we should have added Sadducees also, did not come to John because they believed him. They really came in order to see what he was doing. Christ later challenged them concerning this, as it was recorded at Matthew chapter 21. The baptism of John, whence was it, from heaven or of men? And they reasoned within themselves, saying, If we shall say from heaven, he will say to us, Why then did you not believe him? Luke tells us later, in Luke chapter 7, And all the people heard, and the tax collectors deemed Yahweh just, being immersed in the immersion of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the counsel of God in regard to themselves, not being immersed by him. So we see that these men were certainly not baptized by John. Reading the same account given by the Apostle John in chapter 1 of his Gospel, that estimation is fully corroborated. These men were acting as priests, yet rejected the counsel of God and the baptism of John, and ultimately rejected Christ. Continuing with the account of John the Baptist from Luke chapter 3, we read something which Matthew did not fully record. Even though he recorded John's answer to the priests regarding the expectation of another man who would follow him, where Luke wrote, And as the people were in expectation, and all men mused in their hearts of John, whether he were the Christ or not, John answered, saying unto them all, I indeed baptize you with water, but one mightier than I cometh, the latchet of whose shoes I am not worthy to unloose. He shall baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire, whose fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly purge his floor, and will gather the wheat into his garner, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. And many other things in his exhortation he preached unto the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, being reproved by him, for Herodias his brother Philip's wife, Herod the Tetrarch marrying his brother Philip's wife while his brother Philip had still been alive. Even worse, they even swapped granddaughters and stuff like that. And for all the evils which Herod had done, 
added yet this above all, that he shut up John in prison, Luke writing that, at a time when John was still alive. As Yahweh himself in Genesis chapter 4 had challenged Cain to do good, and Cain immediately went out and killed his brother. So also John the Baptist challenged the Pharisees and Sadducees to do good, and he even challenged Herod, who was demonstrably an Edomite, to do good. Yet, he himself was nevertheless slain for it. And they went so far as to kill God himself in the person of Yahshua Christ. As Christ had said, as it is recorded in John chapter 8, they sought to kill him, thereby doing the works of their father the devil, Cain, who was a murderer from the beginning. This is the way that the counsel of God had chosen to separate the wheat from the tares. The wheat became Christians and the tares became or remained as Jews. Here in Luke we see the people had pondered whether John may have been the Christ. So we see that an even greater portion of the population were expecting the promised Messiah at this time. Matthew did not explain this in his records concerning the baptism of John, but the people evidently did not realize that the prophets had foretold of a messenger which would precede the Christ to prepare his way, even though we see a prophecy of that in both Isaiah and in this chapter of Malachi. So finally, we read of John further on in Matthew chapter 3. Now when all the people were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus also being baptized and praying, the heaven was opened, and the Holy Ghost descended in a bodily shape like a dove upon him, and a voice came from heaven which said, Thou art my beloved Son, in thee I am well pleased. And here we should make a note about the success of John baptizing people. John was found on the Sabbaths and ostensibly on other days down by the river. I should have played that song tonight, perhaps, for our bumper music. John was found down by the river. Why wasn't John in the synagogues? Why weren't the people in the synagogues? And this is another facet of the scripture which shows the disaffection which the people must have had with the priesthood and with the Levites of their time, that they were going to the rivers to congregate rather than to the temple or the synagogues. And that is why John and even the apostles of Christ were so successful in gaining converts at the rivers. We see in Ezekiel, Ezekiel being a prophet of the Assyrian captivity, if you read his book thoroughly enough, it's easy to discover that, had seen, had had his initial visions as he gathered at the river with the people to pray. We see in Philippi in Macedonia, which we are told is a town with no Judean synagogue, that Lydia and other pious Judean women gathered by the river to pray and that's where Paul and Silas and his companions had first met them. 
So it's evident in scripture that where there was no proper assembly, the people were were gathering at the rivers. In Judea of the time of Christ, many people must have been distrustful of those denominational synagogues and looking for another place to gather. The Apostle The Apostle John gives an even fuller account of John the Baptist's testimony at the baptism of Christ. And we read, John bare witness of him and cried, saying, This was he of whom I spoke. He that comes after me is preferred before me. For he, he was before me. Meaning he must have been God, because he was clearly born after him. And of his fullness have all we received, and grace for grace. For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. No man has seen the Father at any time, the only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. And this is the record of John, when the Judeans sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who art thou? And he confessed and denied not, but confessed, I am not the Christ. He was the messenger sent before him. And they asked him, What then? Art thou Elijah? And he saith, I am not. And we should note that. We will speak about that shortly in this series. Art thou that prophet? And he answered, No. Then said they unto him, Who art thou, that we may give an answer to them that sent us? What sayest thou of thyself? He said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of Yahweh. As said the prophet Isaiah. And they which were sent were of the Pharisees. And they asked him and said unto him, Why baptizest thou then, if thou not be that Christ, nor Elias, neither that prophet? John answered them, saying, I baptize with water. But there stands one among you, whom you know not. He it is who coming after me is preferred before me, whose shoes latch it I am not worthy to unloose. These things were done in Bethabara beyond Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day John sees Jesus coming unto him and says, Behold, the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man which is preferred before me, for he was before me, and I knew him not. Now you will say, Well, John and Joshua were cousins, but that doesn't mean that they necessarily recognized each other as cousins after years of separation. And I knew him not, but that he should be made manifest to Israel. Therefore, I am come baptizing with water. And John bare him record, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and it abode upon him. And I knew him not, but he that sent me to baptize with water, the same said unto me, Upon whom thou shalt see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, the same as he who baptizes with the Holy Ghost. 
or Holy Spirit. And I saw and bear record that this is the Son of God. Again the next day after John stood, and two of his disciples, and looking upon Jesus as he walked, he said, Behold the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. These two disciples, hearing John, then in turn announced to their brethren just a few verses later, We have found a Messiah, which is being interpreted the Christ. With both this record in the Gospel of John and the words of John the Baptist recorded by Luke, we see the two messengers of Malachi chapter 3, and the purpose of the second was announced by the first. And if the first is the prophecy preparer of the path, then the second is the true Lord of the temple. Here we will read again what Malachi said in the opening verses of this chapter, because we have further comments. Behold, I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek shall suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant, whom you delight in. Behold, he shall come, saith Yahweh of hosts. But who may abide the day of his coming? And who shall stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire, and like fuller soap, and he shall sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he shall purify the sons of Levi, and purge them as gold and silver, that they may offer unto Yahweh an offering in righteousness. And Christ himself was that offering, being the Lamb of God. As it also prophecies in Isaiah chapter 40, which three of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and John, had cited in this very context, John the Baptist fulfilled the role of the messenger sent to prepare the way of Yahweh, who came in the person of Yahshua Christ. Yahshua Christ is the Lord, whom you seek, the Messiah they would be expecting, who shall suddenly come to his temple, he being Yahweh. And the messenger of the covenant, the new covenant promised by Yahweh, as it is recorded in both Jeremiah and in Ezekiel, Yahweh had explicitly announced through the prophet Zechariah in chapter 11, who wrote at least some years before the time of Malachi, that the old covenant was broken for the sins of the people. Here where we see it said that he is like a refiner's fire, and like fuller's soap, and he shall sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he shall purify the sons of Levi, and purge them as gold and silver, that they may offer unto Yahweh an offering in righteousness. It seems to be ambiguous as to which of the two messengers it refers, because the statements concerning the second messenger seem to be parenthetical to the purpose described of the first messenger. So the subject changes from the first messenger to the second, and then perhaps after the parenthetical remarks, it changes back, or perhaps not.
But in any event, it should be evident that perhaps the statements refer to both and to either messenger, as they are both operating to fulfill the will of the same God. As we had seen from the Gospel of John, in the first messenger, which is John the Baptist, the first messenger announced that Yahshua Christ was the Lamb of God, as John had baptized him. In the law, there are specific commandments that the priests were to be cleansed before the sacrifice of sin offerings and other offerings. The Passover lamb and other sin offerings were also to be cleansed in a certain manner. These things are seen in Leviticus chapter 1, Exodus chapter 12, and elsewhere. We said in the following, I'm sorry, and I keep running out of air before I run out of words. We said the following in our presentation of Luke chapter 3. In the Old Testament, washing of the body is seen of the priests before they enter into the temple to do service and to make sacrifice. From Leviticus chapter 8, verses 4 through 6, And Moses did as Yahweh commanded him. And the assembly was gathered together unto the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. And Moses said unto the congregation, This is the thing which Yahweh commanded to be done. And Moses brought Aaron and his sons, and washed them with water. And then from Numbers chapter 8, from verse 21 we read, And the Levites were purified, and they washed their clothes. And Aaron offered them as an offering before Yahweh. And Aaron made an atonement for them to cleanse them. And after that went the Levites in, in to, in, into the tabernacle, in to do their service in the tabernacle of the congregation before Aaron and before his sons. As Yahweh had commanded Moses concerning the Levites, so did they unto them. All of Numbers chapter 8 describes the cleansing of the Levites. Aside from these passages concerning the priests, or certain occasions where people are instructed in what to do upon exposure to diseases or corpses, or certain other circumstances, aside from these passages, there is no other ritual cleansing of the body required by the law. Remember the words of Yahweh. We wrote this presenting Luke chapter 3. Remember the words of Yahweh in the prophecy of Malachi chapter 3. And he shall purify the sons of Levi. John the Baptist was also a Levite. So he could fulfill the priestly role of cleansing which Moses the Levite had done first, long before him. As it is recorded in Matthew chapter 12, I'm sorry, chapter 21. Yahshua Christ had challenged his adversaries and asked them, The baptism of John, whence was it, from heaven or of men? And they reasoned with themselves, saying, If we shall say, from heaven, he will say unto us, Why why then did you not believe him? Here in Malachi, we see that the baptism of John was by the authority of Yahweh, as John the Baptist had cleansed the sons of Levi, and once they were clean, they could offer a righteous offering to God. 
And he had also cleansed the offering. He cleansed the Christ and declared for him to be the Lamb of God. Ceremonially fulfilling the requirements of the law and thereby preparing the way for Christ to be an appropriate Passover sacrifice. The symbolic meaning in this fulfillment therefore reveals the deeper and spiritual truths of Scripture. But Yahshua Christ himself, who is the Lord come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant, would cleanse the sons of Levi in another way. As Malachi had written, that he shall sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he shall purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver. So as John the Baptist himself had said that, from Luke chapter 3, that I indeed baptize you with water, but one mightier than I cometh, the latchet of whose shoes I am not unworthy, I am not worthy to unloose. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire whose fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly purge his floor, and will gather the wheat into his garner, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. John the Baptist cleansed the sons of Levi, and fulfilled the ritual requirements of the law, in relation to the sacrifice of Christ for sin. But Christ himself purged the sons of Levi, of impure elements in the separation of the wheat and the tares, which is, which is evident in the Gospel of Christ. He spoke in the same manner to his apostles, where he said, as it is recorded in John chapter 15, Now ye are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you, a word which the Jews could never understand, because they were not his sheep. Over the several centuries after the resurrection, the Christian gospel spread throughout the dispersed nations of Israel, and the Jew was separated from the greater society, ultimately becoming ostracized as his usury, his filth, and his perversion were no longer acceptable among the Christian nations. Once that was accomplished, the situation endured for a proverbial thousand years. And now Satan is let loose from the pit once again. The idea that Jews should have been admitted into the Christian society, and especially that the Jews should be converted, even though Christ himself had disdained the idea of converting them, helped result in the undoing of Christendom, although Yahweh God had certainly also foreseen that undoing. The end of this shall be a subject for our discussion when we present Malachi chapter 4. In the meantime, once the wheat and the tares were separated with the gospel, we see it said in the next verse of Malachi, that then shall the offering of Judah and Jerusalem be pleasant unto Yahweh, as in the days of old, as in former years. Of course, in Christ, the substance of the offerings had changed. 
But up until this point, as Malachi had explained in chapter 1 of his prophecy, the offerings were not acceptable at all because of the sins of the priests. Once the priests were again separated from the bastards by the gospel of Christ, they could offer sacrifices acceptable to God. However, the way of the Lord must be prepared once again before his second advent for very much the same reasons but in quite a different manner. This we will see described in greater depth I hope in the next segment of our presentation of this prophecy of Malachi. That will be all. Thank you for listening. Tomorrow night, author Lee. We hope to resume with the protocols of Satan next week. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening.